Welcome to the Docs Who Lift podcast, where we distill and simplify the complexities of a healthy lifestyle, exercise, medicine, and weight loss. We're excited to bring you a podcast that's a prescription for clinical practice, scientific recommendations, and just real life. This is the Docs Who Lift podcast. Hey, hey, hey. Welcome back to the Docs Who Lift podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Spencer Nadelsky, and with me, I have my co-host, Dr. Carl Nadelsky Jr. We have another special guest today, Dr. Brianna Duran. She's a DPT out in Seattle with her own private practice, and she's going to talk to us, who are not experts on this topic, uh, pelvic pelvic floor uh, 101 type of stuff, incontinence uh, in in women who are lifting weights. We see this a lot and I'm always like, go to your physio, go to your physical therapist who, who, and and not every physical therapist does this type of stuff. So we're we're glad to have- The OBGYN certainly, you know, talk about a lot. And we're obviously, we're always trying to get everyone to do some sort of resistance training. Hence the podcast name, we're shills for lifting resistance training. But yeah, this is so far right. out of our. I expertise. see it a lot after pregnancy. Yep, so, absolutely. Um, you're going to school time. us. You're going to school us and our audience all yeah. about this. So, welcome. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. I've been a longtime listener to Doc Who Lifts, so this is really <laughs> exciting for me. Um, well, cool. Yeah. <laughs> so, you're a fellow Doc Who Lifts. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I. Um, that's actually a great segue. So I got into pelvic floor because I started my competitive powerlifting journey while I was still in grad school. Um, and as I immersed myself in that world, I noticed there was like a lot of pelvic floor dysfunction going on. Um, most visibly is the urinary incontinence with people assigned female at birth while they're deadlifting, but it's definitely not the only kind of pelvic floor stuff going on in the powerlifting or strength training world. Um, and almost all of the pelvic floor education at that time, because as you mentioned, Spencer, um, it's not like an entry level skill. Not everyone learns it. Um, it's mostly focused on like cis women in pregnancy postpartum, um, but you can totally have pelvic floor stuff, even if you have not had a kid. Um, a funny story I tend to tell is because I also do orthopedics, so I treat the whole body. And I was treating this like 40 year old dude for a rotator cuff repair. And the patient I had right before him was um, a pelvic floor patient. So I had like lube on the counter. And he was oh. like, why do you have that there? <laughs> What's that for? And I was like, oh, yeah. So I also do pelvic floor. It's this other thing. And he's like, oh, my wife's pregnant. I should send her to you. Um, too bad I can't also see you for pelvic floor. And I was like, you could. You also have a pelvis. Like, we all have muscles. Um, the anatomy is almost completely the same, regardless of um, sex assigned at birth. So, yeah, there's um, a lot to know about the pelvic floor. So maybe we can start with just like what the heck it yeah, does. Yeah, get into it. Yeah. yeah, tell 101, us. Because we don't know a day. It's, right? it's been a minute since we... <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Y'all have other important stuff you're learning about and memorizing and looking for, so it makes sense. Um, I think the most commonly known one is the sphincter control, which makes sense. So we have the urinary anal sphincters. Um, and as as you both alluded to and is definitely true, um, folks assigned female at birth definitely has a high, have a higher rate of stress urinary incontinence, mostly because of the shorter urethra, but also because of some hormonal changes with menopause and pregnancy. Um, but it's not exclusively to women. Um, men can also have incontinence. It's usually then related to prostate issues, right? Because the prostate encircles the urethra. And so after prostatectomy, after cancer or things like that, um, we tend to see incontinence. Um, so there's sphincter control. There's also the second most obvious one is um, sexual function. So any kind of pain with sex 
Um, even things like um, difficulty reaching orgasm or for people with high male at birth, like any type of like ED or PE, those are all potentially pelvic floor related issues um, that could be treated. Uh, and then before you start recording, we talked a little bit about prolapse and that's another function supporting the organs. Um, so I always tell patients like your organs are not going to fall out of your body, um, but they're encased in fascia and that fascia can start to slip down away from where it needs to be. And then it's harder for those muscles to do their job. Um, the last two, the stabilizing one, I think it's overlooked a lot in, in the strength and exercise world. So sometimes unresolving hip and back pain can be its own symptom of pelvic floor issues. Um, I, I don't know how many times I have someone come in for like hip pain with the sumo deadlift. And after a few sessions, I'm just like, hey, is it okay if I ask a few more personal questions? And then I find out they're also constipated and they have pain with sex. Um, and I'm like, maybe we should just screen the pelvic floor, rule it out. Uh, and then the last function, I think they were just trying to keep the alliteration going because all of these start with S, um, is stump pump, <laughs> uh, which is just basically the contraction of the muscles helps to push fluid back up towards the center so we don't get swelling. Um, and so some folks get swelling in the lower body. Um, it's pretty rare, but sometimes that can be their only symptom of pelvic floor stuff going on. So people... Should people be working on this stuff before they come see? Is there a way to prevent all this stuff or what do you what do you think? That's a great question. Yeah, I do think there's definitely a lot of self-care that can be done. Um, obviously, um, as like a healthcare professional, I'm biased and I'm usually like, you should just get an eval. But I realize it's not always accessible to folks for a variety of reasons. Um, I also think there's a lot of misinformation out there about what is healthy and safe for the pelvic floor. Um, so there are some general self-care tips that I tend to give when I'm doing like community workshops and stuff like that. Um, and rarely is it like just do a bunch of kegels, which is what folks tend to do. Um, some people don't know that kegels can actually be harmful if you have like an overactive or hypertonic pelvic floor. Um, it can make your symptoms worse. So, um, which I would say is, is quite common in the lifting population. So a lot of my power lifters I treat um, are really, really strong and their muscles, I, I usually relate it to like the upper traps. Their muscles are super active all the time, um, but muscles can be, they can be um, so active all the time that when it's time for them to do their job, they're not able to function very well. So they're like, for lack of a better term, like tight and weak in the pelvic yeah. floor. Yeah. And do, so kind of, you know, focusing on those who are lifting or, you know, and obviously you know, our patients are not usually powerlifters, although we have them, um, ranging from people who are, you know, like elite type mm -hmm. athletes to those who have never exercised a day in their life and we're just trying to get them to do anything. Are there, like, is there a much higher risk of these dysfunctions in, say, you know, types of, the types of lifts that people do or types of exercise? Like, is there any specific kind or is it just kind of? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, yes, absolutely. There is finally in like the last five to 10 years, we're seeing a bit of a, of a groundswell in the literature to help us better understand this demographic, um, specifically like lifting um, related uh, stress incontinence. Um, so for example, there's actually this very recent study that came out just last year in the Journal of Strength and Conditioning. Um, and it's not a huge study, but they had an N of 425, which is not tiny. Um, and they found that like 60% of, of women who had stress incontinence didn't have it before starting lifting. Hmm. Um, and so it, it can potentially be lifting induced and almost 70% of it thought it was completely normal. Like they thought it was totally normal to pee during the deadlift. 
Um, and I think that's because culturally we went from like being really ashamed, which is not great. We don't want folks to feel judged, but we went to like glorifying it. And mm -hmm. so I would say, especially in like the more plyometric based CrossFit communities, like double unders are common offending activities, box jumps, that kind of stuff. Um, and you know, they're, they make like t-shirts that say like, I know I'm strong because they're key, double unders, that kind of stuff. So yeah, I know. It's, sorry. My brother's dying. <laughs> I wonder if he's. He might be peeing his pants while he's coughing too. You know, you can see a pelvic floor piece. Yeah, someone better, someone better check his pelvic floor. Good God. Um, but yeah, in terms of like the types of activities, like I, I think, um, yes, definitely like plyometric stuff as far as so stress and continence for folks. Um, I don't know if like the majority of your listeners are also healthcare providers or mostly like. There's some, but go ahead. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's pretty so, broad. Pretty broad. Okay, so like. Stress incontinence just means that you leak whenever there's increased what's called intra-abdominal pressure. So that's usually laughing, coughing, running, jumping, sneezing, lifting, anything that increases in um, pressure there, as opposed to like urge incontinence, which is where you're um, feeling like I need to find a bathroom right now or I'm going to pee my pants. So there's different kinds of incontinence. Um, and so I, it's definitely not normal, um, but it is quite common. Conservative estimates say that like one in five people assigned female at birth will have incontinence in their lifetime. And that's, I say conservative because folks still have a lot of taboo and fear or they're being told by loved ones or by healthcare providers that this is normal and so they don't seek treatment. Yeah, I, I, to me, I think the biggest issue is that there's not enough people like you around. Like, because I like I always try to refer to people like you in the area or, you know, I do a lot of telemedicine. And I'm like, we need to find you literally someone who specializes in this because I can't just send you to any mm -hmm. uh, random physical therapist. Totally. So, totally. Is it becoming a new like a, a more um, studied topic? Are there more people getting into it or is it just few and far between or uh, it's definitely improving. So um, our professional organization, the American Physical Therapy Association, when I was in PT school, um, their designation for like a pelvic floor specialist at the time was a WCS, which means women's health specialist, which we now know, again, is like all genders have a pelvic floor. Um, but when I was in PT school, there were three women's health specialists in all of Texas. <laughs> um, wow. But now there's probably like I don't know, a hundred times that it's, it's definitely okay. improving. Um, and for folks who are looking to find one or refer, um, pelvic or, uh, pelvic rehab.org has a directory. Um, Say it again. Pelvic rehab.org. Pelvic rehab.org. Okay. That's actually good to know from yeah. my own <laughs> pelvic rehab.org. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Good. So that's the way to find it. Other clinicians who are listening, you can refer patients there, right? That's what yes. you're saying. Yes. Okay. So going back to the, you know, the exercises that cause it, I, is it, because this would make sense to me, but I just don't know, are heavier weights with more straining, like heavy deadlifts, more associated with the dysfunction or not necessarily? Um, yes. Yeah, so there have actually been some studies. I think there was like a systematic review last year um and they found that the deadlift in, in the powerlifting world is the most common followed by the squat and the bench press is like very rarely um provoking uh incontinence which makes a lot of sense um and in terms of like being load dependent um i don't know if there are studies on that but i can say from like a clinical standpoint i definitely see that it's one of the first things i ask my patients to get a sense of the severity so i ask them like 
okay, if you leak with a deadlift, do you leak when you're just warming up the bar or is there a certain threshold? Um, and then after that point, and, um, a common theme I tend to see, um, has to do with like specifically with deadlifting, how folks are bracing and if they're belting. Um, and I, I know I'm talking about like mostly competitive folks, but definitely like uh, weekend warriors or people who are just like deadlifting to, to stay healthy can also experience this. Um, but if folks are using a belt, um, a common piece of advice I give is like not to over rely on it because if we, if we use it, I know folks who, who their one or max deadlift is like 350 and they, they start belting up at 135. <laughs> That's way too soon. Um, and when they do that, their, their core and their pelvic floor is not having to work as hard. Um, and so it kind of becomes dependent on the belt. So the belt is, is, um, definitely like worth using, but usually not until you hit like the 80% one rep max mark. Um, and then bracing. So like a lot of folks do a Valsalva. Um, and so for folks who are listening and are familiar with that is it's like the breath holding while, while exerting. And that really increases intra-abdominal pressure. Um, and so, so breathe out when you're yeah, exactly. contracting your muscles. Yeah. Yeah. I teach what's called a modified Valsalva. Um, I think for folks who aren't competing or aren't lifting very heavy, it's not super worth it from a pelvic floor standpoint to do the Valsalva. But I recognize for folks who are lifting, to, they're trying to do like as much as they can on a platform for a competition. Um, a Valsalva can be really useful. So I usually teach them to, to give that like big belly breath, but then exhale through um, a partially closed glottis. So they make like a shh sound, like they're telling someone to be quiet um, as they're moving through the motion instead of waiting to the top. Like I've had patients who do all eight reps of a set and don't breathe the whole time, um, which is not great for oh, the problem. Yeah. So I don't think that's great for anything. Mm-hmm. What? Okay, let's start. If if somebody's just having some stress and continence while sneezing, jumping after you know they, they're getting older, whether it's like you said, menopause or post pregnancy, postpartum, what like what, how, you evaluate them, you figure it out, and then what kind of exercises? What do you do? And then how is that different than somebody who's developing it from deadlifting? And if they have over what you said, like overactive um, uh, pelvic floor. Yeah. So, um, so yes, if someone is like older or postpartum and they're having, um, you know, lower intensity triggers, so sneezing, coughing, right? The typical, I have to cross my legs after I have a baby. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so we do an evaluation, um, which um, does typically include an internal portion, but you know, there's like no speculum, there's no stirrups. Um, I have a whole thing on my YouTube channel about what it entails because it can sound really scary and I understand that. Um, but sometimes with those folks, um, if it's like sneezing, laughing, coughing, um, it can be as simple as they have, um, there's this reflex we have, it's called the knack reflex. And whenever you laugh, cough, sneeze, you sh your pelvic floor should automatically contract a little bit on its own. Um, it's a spinal reflex, just like when you hit the patellar tendon with a reflex hammer. Um, and it can become um, kind of like discoordinated after um, an event like pregnancy, postpartum, that kind of stuff. So sometimes we literally, um, you know, it's weird, just turn it into an exercise. I'll have them kegel and then cough a little bit on purpose. And you're just retraining that reflex um, so that it becomes, um, so it starts doing what it's supposed to do. Um, and then for folks who are doing more high level stuff, we definitely do start with kegels when that's appropriate. Um, and laying on your back or on your side is going to be the easiest because then those muscles don't also have to fight gravity. Uh, and then we progress to um, harder positions. So standing, um, standing with feet apart. Um, there's 
There's also some evidence that some exercises, when done correctly, can actually get the pelvic floor on better than just a kegel on its own. So um, like kegling with a squat, kegling with a bridge, kegling with a lunge um, can improve the pelvic floor recruitment when they did EMG studies. Hmm. Yeah. And how, like how long does it usually take for someone to improve? Mm-hmm. Um, so that definitely, um, like other musculoskeletal uh, issues, depends on the chronicity and severity of their symptoms. Um, so from like a muscle strength standpoint, we know like it truly takes at least eight weeks for muscles to get stronger. But we know from like neuromuscular control, um, usually I compare it to like when you learn the bench press for a first time. When you first learn the bench press, like your arms are shaky. You, you don't know what the bar path is supposed to look like. Um, and you definitely have improvements in strength before eight weeks. But it's not because your pecs suddenly got much stronger in like a few weeks. It's just because your your nerves now know um, the motor pattern and they know how to move and the bar path is smoother. So some people respond really fast um, and they get better in like six weeks, but then other folks, um, it's a more long-term uh, treatment plan. Yeah. Interesting. Is, so for people out there um, who are, you know, a lot of our say average patients who are needing to exercise and maybe may, they may not even tell us, you know, they're, cause <clears throat> like you said, there's maybe some embarrassment that they shouldn't have, but uh, you know, I, I, kind of thinking of a lot of my female patients who, you know, we really need to exercise for obesity, diabetes, but also osteoporosis, a lot of postmenopausal aging uh, uh, ladies um, that I, I can see. And I've heard from some of them about this. Can they listen to this and say, okay, I'll start trying some of those exercises, almost like, like what we would call empiric therapy, or, or do you really think they need to get evaluated first to make sure there's nothing like severe going on, like if it's mild. Right. Um, definitely as much as I would love to, um, to say that they could just like start the like empiric therapy on their own. They, we do have some studies um, trying to assess um, folks ability to do a pelvic floor contraction or, or a kegel and um, like their confidence with doing that. Um, and the evidence is like not super great that folks can actually do a pelvic floor cr contraction correctly, oh. um, even if they think that they can. Um, and it makes a lot of sense because there's a lot of like taboo and shame with this part of the body. And a lot of people, especially those socialized female, aren't really taught to think about it very much unless it's for like having babies. And so um, a lot of them like aren't super familiar with how to contract these muscles. Um, and so having someone at least like do an evaluation and get the ball rolling so they are using the right muscles in the right way um, is going to be a safer bet. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. What else, what else we got? How do we, how do we get people to make sure that they're paying attention to this? Not be, not feel shamed. Yeah. Uh, make sure yeah. that it's like, you know, that's, Hey, this isn't actually normal. Well, so like and, you should and the normal, yeah. Like you said, the normalization, I, cause now that you say that I definitely do hear maybe not so much patience, but like friends and family kind of, you know, laugh about oh, every time I sneeze or do a jumping jack anymore, I urinate a little bit. And you're right. It's, it's become normalized. And I, I don't think that's the awareness of the fact that we shouldn't have that normalized is enough, apparently. I, absolutely. I agree. So I think it just starts with awareness. And 
to be fair, like physical therapists, I realize like we, we don't we don't always like promote um, some of our, our things very much. Um, but there's there's a lot that folks, um, I think, can be made aware of. So um, any drop of urine, whether it's like just a tiny bit or enough to change your clothes, whether you're 18 years old or 80 is not is not considered normal. Um, but it, again, it is quite common. Um, specifically with like lifting and leakage, um, even if it's more recreational and not competitive, there is some evidence that not getting treatment can contribute to things like pelvic organ prolapse later on, um, which we don't want. Um, and so there, there are some like common symptoms that if folks have them, I would encourage them to at least get an evaluation. Um, or if they, if they aren't able to, um, usually there are like online or community workshops or resources. Um, I mentioned like I have a, a YouTube channel. So for example, any type of leakage, um, but also the opposite of that, difficulty getting urine or feces out. So constipation can be a pelvic floor issue. Any type of sexual changes um, can be a pelvic floor issue. Um, symptoms of prolapse that a lot of people aren't aware of is it can feel like tissue is sliding down in the front or the back canal or like underwear stuck inside or there's like a heaviness or a fullness. A lot of people postpartum will say like, you know, I'm starting to get back into running after having a baby. And after my runs, I feel like this heaviness, um, like in the vagina. And that is some, a symptom of prolapse, but folks just might not be aware of what it is. Um, and hip and low back pain, that's not going away. Even if you've seen like a orthopedic PT and they're, they're trying to do all the right things, they might just be missing an important piece of the puzzle. Very good. That's, that's amazing. So can you uh, kind of run down, because I think part of this is, you know, raising the awareness and getting some education out there and resources. So can you run down, you talk about your YouTube channel. How do they find your YouTube channel? Yeah, great question. So <clears throat> my, uh, my practice is called Empower Physiotherapy. If you just look Empower Physiotherapy <laughs> in YouTube, you'll find it there. Um, I, as well as a lot of other pelvic floor um, therapists offer like online workshops. For example, I do like pelvic floor one-on-one with a local midwifery group. Um, oh. I often go to like local gyms and do pelvic floor one-on-one for athletes. And so um, there very well might be that in the, in the area of um, your listeners. And so they might just have to look around if like seeing a, a pelvic floor therapist one-on-one -on -one might not be um, uh, a possibility for them. And I will say for the shame and the stigma and stuff, um, I think pelvic floor is a little unique in that when we're getting training in this, um, we are the patients. So we are on the table. We are feeling what the assessments feel like. Um, and so I tell my patients, like, I know this is really, this is like uncomfortable. It's no one's favorite thing. Um, but like, I know what it's like to be on the table and to be experiencing um, this. And so sometimes that helps folks feel a little more comfortable um, because they know that their provider is like familiar with uh, kind of the vulnerability associated with getting this kind of care. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Do you, do you have any social media stuff like for you personally that people can follow or for your? Yeah, my company? Instagram is empower.physio. Um, and my website is the same, just empower.physio. No.com, just .physio. Dot yeah. physio. Thank cool. you so much for coming on. It's an important topic. Oh, and, and that what that website again, the org, dot org, the um... uh, pelvicrehab.org. Pelvicrehab.org. I, yeah, I think that's a great, that's good great resource. resources. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This was a, this is wonderful. Yeah, thanks for spreading the awareness, and uh, hopefully, yeah. people have got. If you have any family members or friends or patients who are struggling with this, make sure you share this with them. Yeah, and thanks for educating us. I mean, that's beneficial for our patients hugely. Yeah, Very pleasure. cool. Thank you. Thank you so much. Here's thanks. our outro.
This podcast is for entertainment and education and information purposes only. Remember, the physicians on this podcast are not your physician. It should not be considered professional or personalized medical advice. It should not be used to replace speaking with your physician or medical professional to discuss your specific health concerns. The topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose or treat any condition. As a result, we are not responsible for any unwanted medical outcomes. The views and opinions discussed are of those of the host only and do not represent those of any other entities. 